Welcome everyone to the Deep Dive, the podcast that skips small talk and goes straight for the concepts that shape our thinking and behavior. In this podcast, cold expertise is defenestrated as warm philosophy is enthroned in an attempt to explore the field in which we're all scientists looking for answers, living well. Hello world, welcome to another episode of The Deep Dive with me, Eyal Shai, and I have Luke Butler on the podcast today. Hi, Luke. Hello. Excited Thank to you have so much you. for having me. Of course, really happy to have you here and very much looking forward to hearing what we're going to discuss today. Yeah, so I'll let you lead the way and um, introduce the, the topic or bundle of topics, however you want to frame it. What I want to start and talk about today is an idea that I've been playing around with with some friends um, for actually almost a year now uh, that has to do with using metaphors as new ways to build relationships to emotions. And yeah, some of my personal exploration as well as shared exploration with, again, these friends on like the scientific perspective of like, if we scientifically know what emotions are, then we can manage them versus a more poetic or playful relationship to emotions of like, do you need to be told what they are? Do we need some type of knowledge consensus? And is that actually helpful or like distracting or diverting from the path of knowing one's emotions or what does it even mean to know one's emotions um so yeah that's where i want to start and i know we have a few a few meandering paths i could lead off of but i think that's probably a healthy enough topic to begin yes it does sound like that and it's fascinating um usually we start at the beginning as they say and i just like you to give a little bit of background to um understand how and why you approach this subject so even if you look at your own personal life and go back in time um when is your interest in in emotions and in metaphors and at the intersection or something that's premature still but where do we where can we find that in your life yeah um so as with many things, it's kind of like when you ask this question, I feel into like, where did this show up before I knew it was there? And then where did it show up consciously? Um, and for me, it started, I was a camp counselor at a summer camp that my mom ran as a teenager. And I feel like there, because the camp had two rules that my mom and all of her wisdom uh, coined, which were be safe and have fun. Um, and while those may sound like generic, you know, uh, somewhat cliche summer camp rules, they actually were very intentionally uh, put forth as, okay, what does safety mean? Not just as physical safety, right? That's a huge one, especially when you're dealing with children, but emotional safety, psychological safety, social safety, 
um, was something we really prioritized, even if we didn't like articulate it uh, technically as that. It wasn't like there were the bylaws of what be safe means. Um, and have fun, likewise, is deceptively uh, nuanced of, okay, well, how do you make sure everyone is having fun if possible, right? When might people, uh, when might you have an activity that isn't fun? And then how do you navigate that? And so working with children, I feel like for me, I really like lived in an ethos of emotional play um, and saw the power of it, of just like how young people, and when I say young people, I don't just mean children, but also all the teenage counselors and even the adult staff, uh, like develop relationship with one another. Um, so that would be like the subconscious where this came into my life before it came into my life. Uh, I then studied psychology and neuroscience uh, at university, at Temple University in Philadelphia uh, in the States. And that gave me some language and framing to what my experience had been. Um, but also then right after that, after I graduated, I went and worked doing like behavioral support for elementary school students. So like six to 10 years old um, in their school classrooms. And that again was a moment where like I had been to university for four years and been learning all these theories and, and different methods and like one week into that school situation, it was like, okay, wad those up and throw those out and lean on what you learned at the summer camp. Not like, oh yeah, I, I have a degree in psychology. I'll know what I'm doing. It's like, no, I'm a camp counselor. So I have a bag of tricks mm. and I understand like relationship building with children. Um, and I find that relationship building with adults is just relationship building with children. But like, you know, you kind of have to like find your way into the childlike state as I know, you know. Um, and so from there, when I worked at that school and had the realization of like, what I learned in university is not helping an actual human relationship right now. That was about 10 years ago. And so over that 10 year arc, I've worked with young people of different ages, but also uh, kind of stepped off of the academic world. But in part of my 2020, I have so much time on my hands and how do I keep from, <laughs> you know, maintain a shred of sanity was going back into academic literature and getting curious of what are people writing about emotion and cognition and, and emotional development, how emotion sits in the body and found uh, a few academics that really excite me because they're very much like most of what you hear is like inappropriately wrong. And um, while they may take a little harder science approach for me, there's the implications of like, what does it mean for us if we've been told, here's what emotions are and emotional intelligence, da, da, da. And how much is that actually keeping us from ourselves and keeping us from, hey, I can choose to explore this like a six-year-old or like I'm at summer camp. Um, so that's where I think full circle, I started and have landed to where I am today. That's great. Um, yeah, the, the kind of metaphor that comes into my mind, speaking of metaphors, is... The fact that, you know, in the old days, I think today the quality of digital music is quite high. But I know that uh, even today there are these connoisseurs of music that say that the digital can never match the analog, you know, because it's it's about still about bits and this kind of binary thing and somehow they can feel it even when the um, even when the resolution is quite fine. 
And I feel that is what is going on with the science, with neuroscience, with um, emotions, definitely. I mean, things of such complexity that it's really good that science is kind of going into trying and uh, sort things out and make them more discernible by making them into ones and zeros in a way. But we're still so far away from them. And, you know, in the future, who knows, maybe we get to a point where everything, we have such a fine resolution of biology that we're able to kind of make these things simple. But for now, they're absolutely not. And they're so complex. And I feel that's why we have to rely on creativity and playfulness and allowing for a lot of... Um, uncertainty um and there maybe i'm kind of uh, getting away from even something very uh clear to say but does that resonate with you at all it does and you actually echo some of the like academic researchers that i've been most taken to in the last 18 months um because Particularly, there's a neuroscientist uh, named Luis Pachoa at the University of Maryland in the States. And he has multiple papers written on how we need to move into a field of complexity science when considering emotion and emotion and cognition, and even will fold in attention and perception. And he really puts everything on the table. Uh, and what he says is, we need to move out of a boxes and arrows, uh, like box and arrow diagram metaphors, uh, way of thinking about emotions. And he really, uh, the way he breaks it down is that like Isaac Newton and Newtonian physics, the laws of Newtonian physics can fit pretty easily in box and arrow cause and effect um, diagrams. And what he says is that like people have been applying this inappropriately to write the complexity that is there. And he talks and uses the, the language of complexity science um, quite often. And so, uh, yeah, and one of his core theses is like the entire field and like as a species, our understanding of these things will be well served to move out of the idea that we can encapsulate it and reduce it into cause and effects box and arrow diagrams. Um, and yeah, so I think that speaks a lot to what you were saying. Yeah. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this also, um, sits well with, uh, Lisa Feldman Barrett's work because she, um, also is a neuroscientist who's been on several podcasts. Um, and I get my, my stuff from podcasts, not from academic papers. So I'm not as uh, in a position, as good a position as you are to speak about this. But what I understand from her is that she also recognizes the fact that, you know, despite our categorization of these different emotions that we think we know what anger is or what sadness is. In fact, if you look at the person, it turns out that, you know, not one of us has really experienced the very same emotion twice in their life. There's just so much nuance there. And, you know, to even try and reduce it to one word is, is not that. And then when that meets language, I think, then you get into a thing where you internalize maybe that 
maybe it's not right to call myself sad because I'm also a little bit angry at the same time. But when you say that out in, uh, in language, like I'm, I'm sad with a, with a hint of anger, well, that could work. But I think what works even better is to find the poetic way of expressing it is in a way more, uh, more accurate, even though it's like poetic, right? Even though it's not, um, yeah, I, even though it's not exactly accurate in the sense that we're used to. Uh, yeah, no, I, I agree very much with, and also definitely uh, appreciate deeply learning from Lisa Feldman Barrett and yeah, uh, her concept, like what you just described of like, we don't feel the same emotions the same way. And then also she talks about emotional understanding as being culturally situated. Um, and that different cultures have different language for different emotions based on cultural understanding, which goes back to like how people are in relationship with each other and their environment. Um, and I think with what you just shared and what we've experienced as we've like played with how do you use metaphor to gain a better understanding of emotion, what we've experienced is exactly that of like, we sometimes like an emotion that came up as we were playing uh, was anger, right? And like the play is very simple. It's like choose an emotion and everyone, if there's half a dozen of us, everyone comes up with their own metaphor of that emotion and everyone like had picked their own. And then basically it becomes a like, let's tease this out and like, oh wow. So these metaphors were saying these things. Um, so for example, like when we did anger, one person's anger was like flowing molten lava, right? Like really hot, but felt like it had a slow, you know, cadence mm -hmm. to it. And other people was like angry bees. Mm -hmm. And we talked about how when like, I know for me, it's like, I can, I can connect to both of those two different like states of anger and appreciate that they are very different. You know, like I have definitely experienced slow burn anger, right. That is like really mm. hot, but also is like moving on a time scale that might be months or years. Right. Um, have also experienced the buzzing stinging anger of angry bees <laughs> that are like, there's something present that just takes you from zero to like, yeah, ready to attack people. Right. Um, and yeah. So with what you were saying, that idea of approaching things poetically, it's like, right. Does this give us a like science-based epistemology or phenomenology of what is happening mechanistically? No, but that's not the point. Like, does this give us, almost like a, a Rolodex or yeah, like a bag of tricks to explore like both our own emotions. And then a lot of relating has happened with that, with that group of people because now all of a sudden it's like, Oh, this is how you experience the world and goes back to what you said of like, or maybe you didn't say it in these words, but rather than trying to all mutually come up with one working model that we can all fit ourselves into, appreciate that we each have a unique working model of the world, our existence, how we move through those things. 
Absolutely. And I think in order to really facilitate um, each and everyone's understanding of their emotions, I think one thing that should be encouraged is is self-expression, right? And being able to to express that. So I have a reading recommendation and it's a short story by Edgar Allan Poe called The Cask of Amontillado, which recently I wrote a short story that's... Um, it could be found on my Gumroad account. It's it's a it's an um it pays an homage to that original story. And why I love that story is because it's it's so short, and it explores a certain, um, yeah, a certain kind of anger, sadism, which <laughs> again can can't be put into into words like uh, vengefulness, and. It's really worth reading because this is exactly it. If, if you read the Cask of Amontillado, you come out of it with the knowledge of a new emotion or, or a new nuanced emotion, which is just fascinating to discover as a human being. Um, and, you know, the next time, presumably when you would feel something like that, which I, I hope that you don't and that nobody does because it seems to be a very hard emotion to deal with. But it's very clear to me that you'd tell yourself after reading that story, you wouldn't try and tell yourself, oh, I'm vengeful, angry, furious, um, and, and all that. But you would say, oh, I'm just like this character in the cask of Amontillado. You know, yeah, now you have like the whole story is kind of the epitome of that um, nuanced state of mind is it just emotion i think it's mood as well so there's a distinction to be made there i know um yeah and i'm, I'm also interested in in asking you like if you would be willing to share uh, maybe an episode from your life either before you kind of thought of this explicitly or after where you found yourself um maybe at first struggling with pinpointing the emotion you're having or, and then maybe had a breakthrough or anything of the sort. Do you have an example like that? Definitely. Definitely. Um, yeah. I feel like for me, um, the one that comes to mind most is the summer camp where that I described, you know, that I worked at that my mom ran was connected to an elementary school that my mom taught at and my brother and sister and I went to. Um, and it was on a 31 acre uh, plot of land in suburban Philadelphia. And in 2009, uh, during the whole economic recession, the school did was not financially solvent and they had to sell the property um, and close, you know, something that had been very, very meaningful in my childhood and upbringing. And when that all took place, yeah, it was lots of big emotions. Um, and it was something where for me, and just to like identify a couple things here, like at that time I was at university and also was a very, very 
passionate rested my identity on being a professional and American college sports fan, you know, um, which I think is like a really interesting nuance to talk about in relation to emotion mm-hmm. and like how people feel their emotions and where your emotions are situated internally versus externally. Right. Um, but uh, so when that happened, it really, really, yeah, it was a deep disruption in my life. And at that time, I was 21, 22 years old. I definitely, being an American college student, uh, resorted to like drinking, partying, avoidance. Um, yeah, for a, for a bit of time and feel the feeling, right? And I would say the shift that took place was a few years after that, I started playing music with my brother and some friends. We formed a band um, and like, that was like three years after, right? And so for like a three year period, it was kind of, I was definitely living life almost like to use a metaphor, like with an albatross, right? Um, Or, you know, having a weight hung on me that I was not trying to acknowledge as much, like how much it was there, right? And kind of going through life. And for me, it's like, when that happens, it's like when a weight presses you down, it's like, you still can feel like happiness, sadness, anger, joy, you know, laughter, et cetera. But it all is like put in this tighter container. And um, when I started really playing music with my brother, a couple things happened. One, my interest in being a sports fan went way down. Um, And I really connected that to like having creative agency, like being able to create things and be in relationship with people. And during that time, like the, the struggles in the emotional relationship I had to this disruptive experience also like shifted and moved on. And it's almost like metaphorically speaking, if you've ever seen a like a river at the edge of the ocean where like there's there could be a sandbar right and like seasonally there'll be a bar of sand and the river and the ocean are actually disconnected and then like at some point in the season the ocean will break through and reconnect them Mm. and that to me almost felt like and i know i've said a a few different threads here but like when starting to play music and like re-internalizing like my creative capacity um and not just like being creative but then ultimately being a sports fan and like the highs and lows of emotion being connected to like how well are the teams doing um that like opened up and allowed to flow through like these held feelings that i wasn't even fully conscious of you know and or like wasn't letting myself be conscious of like hey this has really been impacting you and like this disruption has kept you from like yeah, emotionally anchoring into seeing where you are now. And it's almost like, you know, people talk about trauma and I think that like many things is warrants a more nuanced conversation. But one of the things about the trauma is it's like, it's almost like time travel where you're in two places at once. And for me, it's like my life path was still going, but there was a part of me that was really stuck here. And so like for a few years, it was like, I was getting stretched over a period of time and not that it was like a salve and it happened overnight. And these are still things. It's like, once I got into this process, it's like, as long as I'm alive, this will be a part of it. But like, 
when starting to create and when that sandbar broke, then it was like this part of me could kind of like catch up or I could live it in a different way that allowed me emotionally to, yeah, free up from like that burden or weight. I think that's beautifully put. And the way you just describe some really complex emotions and trajectories in your life that, that have happened. So I'm really happy to hear that. And I think I can also connect it to something in my life, which is dealing with trauma as well and seeing how being at two places at the same, at the, at the same time or being two places in time at the same time can happen. I think that um, when we get traumatized, there are two things like obviously the trauma can be of uh, different natures and I think different traumas make you react differently. In my case, the trauma was uh, just kind of a thing that happens from the universe. You know, my mom died when I was young. And of course, there was uh, there was a guy to blame in all of it, in all of this. But we never dwelled on that, on blaming a person. And so you just see it as kind of an act of God. Right. So that's very different from having like a, a concrete perpetrator of what traumatized you. I feel traumas come in different shades as well. Um, but one thing that I think is common to traumas is overwhelm. Just sheer overwhelm and facing the fact that something can just happen out of the blue and strike you so hard that you're unable to, to move forward for a while. And if that kind of kicks you back into some sort of shell and makes you go into that shell it's going to take a long time to come out of this shell and it's going to be scary as well. So when I analyze my kind of trajectory after trauma, I definitely see that there were two things. One is sadness, which is totally fitting, you know? Um, so grief, sadness, and then for the longest time, I saw myself as depressed and I never got quite, um, clinically um, diagnosed with that but to me it was depression like i did not want to do much i was very much obsessed with the um like ideation of death and suicide and all that and thankfully i never really attempted anything but i think there's no doubt that it would have been interpreted as depression had i gone and sought uh, professional help um what i'm trying to say is that only in retrospect, like maybe some 20 years later, as I was really seeing myself as a healed person where I don't get triggered by things. I don't have these nights where I wake up and, and remain with racing thoughts all night about bad things. I see myself as healed. And now only in retrospect, I can see that I was overwhelmed for years and years and years. And the only interpretation that was available to me because uh, due to lack of knowledge and lack of um, nuanced way of looking at things, I had told myself that I was sad. But really, I was overwhelmed. I think it was past the point where I was just sad. And I think this overwhelm, for example, is something that is common to so many people and people according to their inclination and past experiences may assign an emotion to it. 
and uh, see themselves as the sad person or the angry person. Uh, but really, it's overwhelm. So why is that interesting? Because in my case, I felt like the path to healing wasn't to fix some sort of chemistry in my head in my head so i have the happy chemistry it was inching towards a better understanding of the world and being less afraid of it and being able to get out there and and play again and expose myself to the good and bad that life has to offer you know um so i think that's fascinating and it's it also relates to to your concept of being stuck at two places and also how you get to finally resolve these things and i think in both our cases it takes creativity creativity is what i think is is the thread that runs through these um only two cases but i dare say that it could be universalized um so I'm really interested in that. Where, what do you think of, of creativity? Obviously, it connects to being poetic, to being um, able to express yourself in new ways and so on. What is the role of, of creativity in, in healing and identifying emotions? Yeah, so I want to I wanna put a pin in answering that question um, like in dialogue because I really appreciated and connected likewise to the story you just shared and wanted to use it as a brief like snippet example of like how we've been using metaphor, um, which also will be creative and then we'll get back to the, the oh, conversation. Um, but so just very quickly, uh, and we can both do this, take like a minute and like first comes to mind, no right or wrong of like, metaphorically how would you describe the overwhelm and metaphorically that you experienced and metaphorically how would you describe sadness um because you you know you identified these as two different things but that got lumped as one thing right, right. and so yeah just wondering like if you think of any type of metaphor for both of those um and i'll mm. do the same yeah wow that's such a good question i'm being put on the spot i love it um yeah, I think the I think what I said, being back in your shell, uh, retrieving to some place where it's kind of like you can't be hurt anymore because you've shut yourself off. All the shutters are down, um, and no sunlight comes in, and it's a kind of um, purgatory because you you're not alive and you're not you're like a walking dead, right? So you're not letting things in that will completely take you out. But you're also, in a very real way, unable to to feel anything and and rejoice at feeling it, even if it's a good feeling. So it's not that I wouldn't smile. In fact, I was still a smiley person who would give out smiles, and that's just who I am. So my personality didn't change. Um, but at the first sign of me being able to recognize that I am happy. Uh, this would get shut down very quickly and and be taken over by this uh, depression and with it the metaphor of, you know, I shouldn't go out there and shouldn't let myself feel like that because, well, I know what happens. Um, 
for me, age uh, 12 or 13, now I'm thinking that, let's say, on average, every 10 years, something truly horrible happens to you, right? So, yeah, I think the metaphor would definitely be something like becoming um, a, a walking dead person in a dark room that uh, is sick of staying in the room, but is also deathly afraid of stepping outside. Yeah. Um, and now, and it do, you don't have to be as extensive, but if you think about a metaphor for like how you experience sadness, um, how would you metaphorize sadness? Yeah. Um, departure for sure. Um, <laughs> departure that moment when you say goodbye to someone close, like with me, obviously it's, it's very much. Um, influenced by actual events in my life. So is it a, is it a metaphor or memory? <laughs> but um, departure, yeah, for sure. Yeah, um, no, that's, that's a beautiful distinction. And um, just I'll quickly, so for me, when I thought of overwhelm, and I thought your articulation was like something I've very much experienced of like, I have spent a lot of time over being overwhelmed, calling it other things. And for me, what I thought about for overwhelm was like, if you were walking across an ice covered lake, but the ice was thin and you went through and all of a sudden now you're in like freezing water. Mm. And even when you get back out, it's like your whole situation has just changed, you know? Um, right. And sadness, I was feeling more of a metaphor of just like, like a cleansing rainstorm, you know, like just when you get rain and it's like, yeah, you can't see the sun. It's very cloudy, but you also know it's a natural part of things that is going to pass over. Mm. Um, and yeah, so I say that and I feel like there's interesting like parallels to what we said, because like that overwhelmed feeling is like, there's a shock, there's a shell, there's a, zombification right or like yeah there's something that is like you are really taken out of an ordinary state yes uh where that the metaphor of sadness and like sadness as departure i think is really beautiful and especially like you said you know is it memory is it metaphor i think the beautiful thing is creatively it can be both right um absolutely but that like that is something that's like more like felt into so it's almost like you know, and obviously the movie Inside Out, if you've seen it, like the Pixar movie. Yeah, I should um, rewatch it, but yeah. Yeah, I think actually I was thinking of having, as part of our metaphoring, like a uh, II, like shared watching of that movie, uh, like and maybe a watching and discussion, because I think there's Love a lot it. of people there who, yeah, that would be a, just a fun thing to do with people. For sure. Um, but yeah, so those metaphors come out as the like, okay, sadness is something that like you can feel into, accept and like move through a moment and overwhelm keeps you from that. Um, right. And you know what? It makes me reflect on on a, on the... So I, I lost my mom just before my 11th birthday. And then I think when I was 20, we had to um, to put down the family dog, which... At that point, I knew her for longer than I, I did my mom, you know, which was kind of, we always had black humor in the family, so I would joke about it. Uh, but she got very old and, 
you know, would pee herself and just everywhere and stuff. And her life didn't seem to be a, a good life. And we took her to the vet. And on the way, I got extremely sad. Like, I'm talking about the dog. Well, you know, after I lost my mom, I would I would uh, have this dog over in my bed. And she was really, like, providing emotional support for me. And I was super sad. But up until now, I had not made the connection that on that day, I know I felt extreme sadness seeing her go. But I was with my dad. I was crying and I told him, you know, I'm so sad, but I'm not afraid. So I had mm. I, I had another departure in my life of somebody important to me, maybe not as important, but quite important. And at that point, I was after years of going into Buddhism, existentialism, just a bunch of isms that kind of helped me frame the world, the world and got me to a point where I was just starting to crawl out cautiously of this dark room right and seeing that the sunlight is there and that you don't get banged on your head as soon as you get out so i was in that situation where i once again felt the same type of departure in terms of metaphor but i was telling my dad in real time like i'm not afraid the overwhelm wasn't there because i also internalized at that point that nothing is going to hit me as hard as that first thing. So in a sense, I, al I already gained also the possibility, the knowledge that I can deal with a lot. Um, so yeah, it's, it's an interesting thought that just now uh, came to me. Yeah, and for, thank you for sharing all of that. Um, and... I like, I'm going to use that to meander back into the question that you asked about, like the power of creativity and healing, right? Or like in those, what are the relationship between those? If that, that is roughly the question you asked before, right? Uh, can you repeat that again? Oh yeah. Just you before, before I brought up these metaphors, mm -hmm. you asked about like, what is the role of creativity in? Yeah, correct. Yeah. Um, and I think the beauty of it is, and like true creativity and play, right? And we've had this conversation before of the like, there is like play, like branded play by people who don't actually understand what that is versus like really rooting into like a more authentic, uh, mm -hmm. if, you know, a like wild unreserved play and creativity. Um, and I think that, in, in like my personal experience and I'm my primary creative outlet is um, music and songwriting. Um, and um, for me, it's kind of like, you can have these moments like that stuck in two places moment, right? Or that fear and the shell that you described. And then you can have these moments of realization in your life of like, oh, I'm not in this state or stage anymore. Um, and then what can also happen is you can now like what you just described right now is like reflect. And it's like, rather than being in two moments in one time where you feel like stuck and unable to like have a clear view of the present, it is almost like the wisdom that comes with healing and experiencing of like, you can now go back to a moment that previously was very stressful or difficult and actually create and like shift a meaning to it. Um, and for me, when I think about like songwriting and lyrics and poetry, 
as ways of expressing experience about the world that isn't just like, here is what I experienced and this is what it was. And like, I'll give you a very straight prosaic experience of it. Um, but that like, I could write a song and it could be deeply meaningful to a very specific moment to me, but that the lyrics are such that like you could hear it and it could be mean something completely different to you. And that's a beautiful thing. But right. like, for me, it serves the purpose as like healing vessel of like, oh, this is me making sense of and like unnodding and like sitting in a, in a time that now like allows me to reconnect to it um, presently um, or like in a, in that like unstuck from time state that Vonnegut uh, used. And I think for me, like using that metaphor example as like a creative healing tool or creative tool of inquiry is it becomes and this has happened again and again when we when we've done this you know this play uh with anyone who's shown up is you have kind of those moments of insight of like oh i never connected these emotions in this way or i never thought of it in this way and actually now and i know i've had this personally of like it's almost like one of those moments where you look back on, on your life but you have a different lens and you're like, oh, I'm looking differently now at things. Or like, this has given me a little, yeah, like a little pearl of insight that allows me to, yeah, play around with, oh, well, here's these moments. And they were very difficult. And it's not that they weren't difficult in that moment, but like what you said earlier, like I can be grateful for the difficulty because it's given me lessons and wisdom I otherwise wouldn't have. Um, and give it the opportunity to create with. Um, and not just like create out of needing to heal and process. But like for me, some of the songs, like I've written songs about difficult times in my life, but from a playful perspective, having, yeah, kind of gone through that uh, meaning making, yeah, process. So I don't know. I got a little meandery at the end. Did that all? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, I think that's, that's wonderful. And it's so, so important to be able to gain new perspectives on things. It kind of, you know, highlights for me the fact that a lot of people think that a philosophy or just doing anything like that is just playing with words. But it's amazing, actually, how through that you finally, you, you really do um, change the contents of your consciousness, right? I mean, it seems almost trivial, like as if there is nothing amazing about it, but to change habits is nothing short of miraculous sometimes. To have something other than the thing that really occupies your consciousness most of the time enter maybe that is uh, one of the definitions of, of creativity, you know? And for me, I felt like at some point my perspective changed and I looked at myself and I said, well, everything is meaningless, right? So I might as well just start doing things. And I'm also, I'm going to die in just a few decades. So I might as well, try things and it's amazing how this even happened because it's really hard to pinpoint the moment where a new thought enters but new thoughts are necessary for solving 
problems if your usual thoughts aren't solving them. So we should really get a lot better at that. And now I'm wondering, are there any techniques that are known to you or that you've experimented with actually? So one of them is, is kind of looking at metaphors, which I think is a creative process. Even if you just hear the metaphors other people use, because then you are you become aware that people are can be very different from you and you can borrow a metaphor from them also, which could help. Um, but I'm wondering, are there any other techniques like tried and tested techniques to kind of spark new uh, spark creativity in in the in the domain of emotions? Yeah, this is uh, I feel like the question so many are after and many, many a book, blog, post, Twitter thread have been written uh, and goes a bit deeper than that, you know, uh, historically. Uh, it's definitely a conversation older than Twitter, um, probably older than books, um, <laughs> but uh, or at least, you know, the printing press, I'll say the things that I'm trying to think if there's anything tried and true, like that I have encountered or played with. I can't think of, like I'm I am called to riff on. I have two thoughts in mind that I don't know that I would call them tried and true, but I think that they are interesting points of exploration for like sparking creativity. And like for me, the core of sparking creativity is that like allowing yourself as much space as possible to play around, get messy and like leave behind right and wrong, good and bad, you know, um, what will other people think? And those things are really difficult because so much of creativity is constrained within form, right? So if I pick up my guitar and I'm like, I want to write a song, um, often that'll start with playing chords, right? But like, because there are, because chords like on a guitar and a, an electric guitar versus an acoustic guitar, like it already has a sound like something else, right? So it's mm -hmm. like already in this constellation. Um, and so part of, for me, creativity is, yeah, like anchoring into what is this that's, that is mine even if it sounds like, even if it's like, oh, this is actually coming from that song over there, like letting that be okay. Like, you know, not being like, oh, I need to do something wholly original. Um, and part of that for me is how do you connect to yourself in a, a flow state, but not a flow state in the chick semi Howley, like, you know, uh, very, I'm trying not to be too cynical, but like, I feel like a lot of people take the idea of flow state and it's like hyper productivity, you know? Um, right. Like, like Kobe Bryant on the, you know, in the zone during a basketball, like this short term, short burst of everything works kind of thing. Exactly. And for me, this flow is more of like, when you're being creative, how do you tune into like whatever flow you're tuning into in that moment that isn't necessarily right that like in the zone go, but it's like, 
in writing songs are like, I'm a pretty bad poet, but my partner, she writes a lot of poetry. So I've been like inspired to write more. And it's just like, how do you just let flow whatever's there, right? Um, and so in terms of tried and true methods um, or things to play with, right? The first, try, I one tried and true method did come up and that's uh, like, Julia Cameron's morning pages in the artist's way. And I think you can do this at any time of day. Like there is something like her tried and true method is when you wake up, write for 10 minutes or write out three, you know, uh, line pieces of paper, right? You can do it timed or you can do it by the amount and just like every day and like let your pencil flow or pen flow or fingers on a keyboard flow and like don't censor yourself. And it's like five different things could come up in 10 minutes and like let them all just like flow as they, they are. Um, and for her, it's the like when, upon waking, getting into that that moment of, of flow is, and again, like creative flow, not productive flow is, uh, yeah, allows you more to see like what even is going on in my mental space, in my heart space, in my creative space. Um, and then letting that be a source of inspiration, you know? Absolutely. I mean, so much to say there. First of all, I think your framing of, of flow is, is a lot more like Stoics where to them one of the features of living well was... Uh, Euroya, which which literally means good flow. So I think a lot of people think a flow state is kind of this modern thing. Well, no, it's ancient, and they aimed at a flow state that's really prolonged, really is kind of follows you around as you go about the day, and not even in in conjunction with with a certain activity that's for some reason today it's flowing, and you know, but this flow state won't carry over to your next very mundane thing. To them, flow could happen throughout the day, even when you bought your olives at the at the market, you know, where you were just on top of things and reacting fittingly to things, um, having the fitting emotion and then, you know, interacting with people, saying the right things um, to benefit them and yourself. I wish uh, we had talked when I embarked on this journey a year and a half ago and didn't know any of that stuff, but it's also fascinating because now that I am here, like so much of what you say is something that I've experienced in terms of giving myself the space, um, being able not to constantly refer to uh, material worries about, you know, if I'm going to create this thing, well, in the end, is it going to make me money? Because I'm kind of worried about money, you know? And this can't be done by declaring war on the thoughts and, and the worries. You really have to get into a state where you um, validate both these aspects of yourself that, that want the best for you, but um, decide to not to mix them all of a sudden. Um, yeah, so so much of the processes you just mentioned resonate with me so much. And I just wonder what I would have thought a year and a half ago, because I would probably just be confused. I hadn't done the things. But now that I've, I've gone through a prolonged period of actually trying to find um, authentic expression and the way to do it, 
I, I totally resonate with that. Originality, that's a big thing. I just told you I wrote a short story. And, you know, whereas in the past I would pain myself about um, in some way plagiarizing a story by Edgar Allan Poe, now I have the confidence to know that I, I was heavily inspired by his story. But, you know, my story is paying an homage to him and there's a clear illusion in it and it's not trying to pretend to be something so original that I'm some, some sort of genius. No, it's, it's his genius. And, you know, it's just me, the, uh, the budding artist who is, in order to find his way, standing on the shoulders of giants, you know? And so that really resonates with me as well. Yeah, creativity, I think, is one of those things that are relatively poorly understood. I think even David Deutsch, who's a physicist and a philosopher I appreciate very much, says that, you know, this is in effect one of those missing links in terms of we really have no idea how to give an AI creativity, for example. GPT-3 mm -hmm. channeling all these different people we think it's genius it's doing something genius no actually it just shows that they were consistent in their creativity and it kind of finds a, a new way to um to reassemble parts and and utterances that they did they did that they said um yeah so creativity is absolutely fascinating uh i'm just worried that maybe i've we've gone off on a tangent here for a while with creativity, which is wonderful. I'm also, um, uh, while that is true, I'm also um, wanting to kind of ask you if, if your story is taking you to any next stop uh, or station on the way in connection with, with feelings and, and that whole trajectory of your experiences and thought. Yeah. So I want to, um, once again, I'll get there, but you, it was very, very uh, neatly done that you kind of talked to another one of these. This is not a tried and true technique. This is a Luke's mad science. Uh, this is an interesting way to look at the world technique, um, which is um, this first happened to me last year and it wasn't intentional. It just like was one of those things. And like, this is one of those tricky things about creativity is sometimes you get hit by something and you're like, Oh, that's really interesting. But like, it wasn't, you, it wasn't consciously building in any way. Right. Yeah. Uh, so last fall I had had a day where I had been working with a group of young people in a, in a fellowship uh, that primarily focused on photography. Um, but because of the, the, whole COVID situation, we, for the first month and a half, had been teaching photography over Zoom. I'm not a photographer. There was another teaching artist. I was the program manager, just to be clear. <laughs> um, and we all, but we all met up for the first time and we got to work together and it was a beautiful day. Like literally it was a beautiful day, but it was also like a really powerful and meaningful day. And after we had had that, that um, event together, I was in an office that I work out of in uh, West Philadelphia. And I just had this moment of like, imagine your younger self 
watching your present day as a movie without any context to, you know, if me in 2015 had watched whatever day in November that was 2020 Luke in this day, right? Or like me at 13 would have watched me at 32 have this day, but no context. No, here's what the journeys were. <laughs> here's, you know, um, just watching it as if in a theater, um, how would you react? What would you think, right? Um, what would surprise you? What would not surprise you? Um, and for me, that's become a really like an interesting reflective exercise that I'll use sometimes with myself, especially like in moments when still having difficulty, right? And kind of have the this like, okay, if me five years ago, right? And you mentioned like, oh, 18 months ago, I never would have seen myself here, but now I'm here, right? It's like, if you 18 months ago could be watching this conversation, like as you've started this podcast, but as a movie, not having the like internal linkage from now to then, right? Um, myself included. Yeah, it like gives interesting insight of, to me at least, like a humble, like, appreciation for where I am now that I wouldn't have expected you know and that like watching that yeah yeah absolutely I mean my 18 year old self would probably be so disappointed with me that I'm not a Buddha you know that I'm not enlightened whereas my uh, contemporary self is eager to teach the 18 year olds is like, you know, everybody who has ever claimed to be enlightened is a charlatan. So it's, it's definitely, it's definitely striking a chord with me for sure. <laughs> yeah, no. And similarly, like in going back to that sports example, like if 21 year old me like saw me on a Sunday like giving up like a friend texting me like hey you know i got an extra ticket to the the you know eagles game the nfl game like do you want to go and you'd be like yeah no i'm not really interested like 21 year old me would definitely have a retrospective like in that moment would have a deep existential crisis of 33 year old me and be like what the fuck happened but like <laughs> for 33 year old me that feels fully aligned and like authentic going back to the word you use and so for me, like, it's a funny exercise to appreciate the evolution of authenticity, right? And like authenticity mm. to me is not just this perfect form that each of us are moving towards, right? But it's also something that's alive and something that evolves and what can feel authentic in this moment could feel wholly inauthentic five years from now, but that doesn't negate the feeling of authenticity it had in this moment, right? And it's like one of those, that that to me actually feels like a pretty, a pretty good example of a dialectic, right? That like your 21 year old authenticity and your 33 year old authenticity don't match up, but they both were real and true. <laughs> Absolutely, a hundred percent. And, you know, luckily I can say for myself that apart from maybe a, a short period in my teens, but for the most part, I'm, I'm very fond of my former self. Like I'm not, I'm not angry or, or anything like that. So uh, that's good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm, I've done a lot of forgiving of myself in the past 
in the past year, but I'm definitely feeling like, yeah, I've got good relationships with the different pasts that I've lived, you know, somewhere, somewhere in those nine lives. <laughs> and it's also important. It could be part of our, you know, wish overall to, to view ourselves as, as good people, of course. Um, but it's, it's quite cool. Yeah. I know that you, that you worked with, um, with young people and I'm interested in also hearing about some of the, some of the trajectories that you, you've seen them take with some work. So I think the default may be that in our teenage years, there's just all this like raging hormones and, and confusion, uh, but maybe that is something that only happens because our culture doesn't really pay attention to some exercises or things that could facilitate um, better time, basically, during those years emotionally and, and in other ways. So, yeah, what, what are some of the effects you've seen on people who have gotten it at, at an earlier age than, than us, let's say? Yeah, so the first thing I have to say is that, so again, I'm 33. I think you're somewhere roughly in the ballpark of that age. Yeah, I'm 34. Um, I turned it 34 in October. Yeah, so. Okay, happy belated birthday. Um, <laughs> teenagers now growing up with the internet and digital technology, like we were on the early days, right? Yeah. Um. Being a teenager now is at once like so much more opportunity and also like so many more uh, pitfalls to navigate just because like imagine having a an iPhone and a Twitter or Instagram account when you're 15 years old, right? And like in those identity questions of like, who am I? Um, yeah, it's, it's very complex, but I've watched some and like definitely worked with some teenagers like and a lot of the work I do is like identity work under the guise of uh, professional exploration for teenagers right oh you're about to graduate high school or you're you know a, a young adult who graduated high school a few years ago you're trying to figure out what to do let's look at career exploration and then really it's like no let's look at identity um, hmm. and one of the things that I find about teenagers and I, so for me also I'll say, and kind of stitching some of this together and it'll land eventually with the like, what comes next? Um, all of us have like a five, six year old, five, six, seven year old version of ourselves and a like 15, 16, 17, you know, uh, of the way that I've watched teenagers move and the way that I watch adults move and the way that I've watched children move is all yeah sure they're developmental milestones but the universality there is thick um right. with teenagers what i find is that when you provide a sounding board and when you really let them explore on their own terms and i would even say like teenagers and like up to the age of 25 um there's it's not every it's not every person by any stretch but there's some 
young people who it's like when you provide that space that they can explore things and like be messy um, and know that you'll be there regardless, they are some of the most like motivated, uh, innovative, reflective people that it's like they, because of, and like, I really do feel this way of like, because of all of the hormonal and developmental and physiological changes that you go through in your teenage years. And like from a brain and mind and conscious perspective, right? That's the moment where like the world kind of does this and you're like, oh, you know, like there was the the magical world of a child that then kind of gets dimmed a little, but then you open back up to, uh, and everything's like in three dimensions now, or maybe in four dimensions mm. now. Um, and I've worked with young people who go through that realization. And may I add, it's populated by other people where when you're a child, you know, which adds just complexity beyond measure, you know, as opposed to when you're a little child and uh, people are just kind of two dimensional to you in a way. Yep, absolutely. And um, so, yeah, and teenagers come up with profoundly creative ideas. Like I do some like entrepreneurial, uh, like intro to entrepreneurship uh, lessons and activities with teenagers. And like, you know, some of them, like there was one, there was one student once and anybody who's listening to this, you know, don't take this idea. Um, at least if you're in Philadelphia, um, there was a student who had the idea. She was like, I love tattoos and I really like working on cars. And so I want to start a tattoo parlor mechanic shop. And so like, right. You can come and get your car worked on. And while you're getting your car worked on, you can also get some ink. and like, you know, and like we talked about, like how you would build a culture around that business of like, they don't all have to be car tattoos, but it's like, you can celebrate these two cultures infused, yeah. you know? And call um, it body paint very clearly. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Uh, um, she hasn't thought of that? No. <laughs> that, we didn't get as far as the name. Um but yeah, that just being an example, right? And for her, it was like, and this is like the funny thing about teenagers is that like, they'll come up with these ideas and they'll just be like, oh yeah, pretty like mundane or like nonchalant about it. But like, oh yeah, I thought that like, that makes sense to me. Here's this whole idea that I've created and laid out. And you're like, that's a really smart idea and like really savvy. And yeah, I think you would definitely have a market and they're just like, cool. Like, you know, and it's like, <laughs> because combining reality and like trying different pieces of reality to see what fits yeah like you in a world that's now populated by more people and things is just a natural state of being um they'll just be like oh yeah i made this and you're like that's really fucking cool and they're like oh yeah thanks um <laughs> but having the space to like and again this isn't every teenager like one thing i've learned is like everybody is a a um an N of one, like to use academic language for a second, right? But it's like, right. you, can chart, you can chart patterns, don't get me wrong, but like you also really appreciate and respect everybody as individual. Um, and so, yeah, that for me 
are some examples. I think something else and I've that I've watched is like for certain young people who may have not had certain opportunities and then are provided them, initially there can be a blowback or an overwhelm of like, wow, I never actually thought I'd get have this opportunity, but here I am. And then like once they sink into that, they are a sponge to skills and experimentation. And like there's a, a young man in one of the, in that photography fellowship that like uh, he always wanted to do photography, never picked up a camera. And then he had got a camera and within like two months had taken a few photos. There was one in particular that um, like multiple people who were in the professional world of photography in Philadelphia were like, yo, I want to buy that print. Like, where is that for sale? And so, and like, he has strong, just natural artistic talent, but also like, as soon as he had this thing in his hands and was like, wow, this really is real. He was unstoppable in a way that I feel like a lot of times adults trying to get into creative endeavors, it's like, we have that, that voice in our head, like what you were saying earlier of like, Oh yeah, I really want to do photography, but like, can I do this for money? And like, can I just by putting the time in? It's like, when you're young and you like something, it's like those questions haven't infiltrated your psyche yet. You're just like, I love having this camera in my hands. So any spare second that I have, I'm going to let myself be consumed by it. I feel like adults, we have a little bit harder time, like, and this goes back to that play conversation, like allowing ourselves to be consumed by a thing. Right. Yeah. But I am, I am also worried about where the world is going in terms of, you know, the, the age I think where you're kind of naive in that way is um, it doesn't, it lasts uh, shorter and shorter amounts of time, I think, because Here's, here's a, a thought, you know, maybe, of course, school kills creativity. That's the most watched TED Talk, I think, ever. Um, and everybody loves saying it, you know. Uh, but do we really know why it kills creativity? Well, supposedly because we sit in classes and maybe not touch enough things or not come in contact with the real world, which... Okay, sure. But maybe a, a big part of it is the fact that, you know, I do believe that people are sending their kids to school thinking that they'll get the kind of um, education or skill set that will help them navigate through life easier, where this is exactly what kills creativity if you are not given free reign to do these thing so just the fact that there is a a schedule and there there are expectations as if um why don't we trust young people to find something they're passionate about and just grow into um productive people in that domain um is beyond me right it's kind of and it's it's so archaic to to try and and telling people you know, here's the the one size fits all solution um, to how to make a living or something like that. So I think what you're saying is is absolutely true. And I'm just throwing the fact that it's not more prevalent in, in our society. Yeah, um, I live that life professionally every day, my friend. Um, <laughs> And I'll give you two pieces of, of like hopefulness that I feel right now. 
Uh, one being that this is definitely something that is more and more people are like trying to address and come to, right? And I do feel like the pandemic has given a profound opportunity for alternate methods of schooling outside of the like industrial one size fits all model. Um, and I think that's something you've been exploring yourself, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So right now my daughter is three and we have this amazing group of some four, between 10 and 14 families that have these gatherings twice a week by a, a, a little creek. And, you know, that would have been unthinkable two years ago. I think people were still in that kindergarten mode where that's where the children go, whatever. And now even even if the for some of them, the reason is so prosaic, like we don't want to go into quarantine every two weeks and, and therefore we should do that, even that. But I think people are coming and it's just picking up momentum. It's it's just starting like now it's seen as completely normal and you know at first it was hard for us to find other families to to meet with and now it seems to be ubiquitous so yeah i can report that what you say is true yeah um and i think that the other thing that's happening and again it's it's like it's all to play for right now um and by that, I mean, there are those who definitely want to uphold the rigidity of the industrialized educational model and who are afraid of, you know, and I think that, that it does come back to like an unresolved fear combined with a like, well, this is the way it was for us. So that's the way it should be, you know, of the sit in a classroom and uh, yeah, kind of go through that very uh, life sucking process. Um, I feel like right now in the working world, right. And there's, a, um, I'll send you some of these after and you could link them out if you would like, there was a, I believe he was either Danish or Finnish, um, thinker, economic philosopher who passed early 2020. His name was Esko Kilpie. And he writes a lot about like the future of work as creative and the systemic changes that we need to get to there. Um, and I think that like thinkers like him, he's one, like you asked about what I wanna be doing in the future. I've actually started reading back all of his essays. He, has, he had a Medium account. So you can go onto his Medium account and they're all still there. Um, and uh, I've been reading back through them and been thinking about like, making a commentary like in honor of his thoughts and also like connected to our questions here. Um, and he also talks about like in the like emergence of creative labor, the creative economy, what's really important is for people to have internal connection to themselves, right? And not just have, you know, if you're working a labor job or an industry job that pays you well, then like that pay gives you a sense of meaning and value so that even if you don't don't love your job, you can go to it, right? And just like, okay, I'm making a good living for my family or for myself, whatever that may mean. And then in the creative, in the world of creative output, creative labor, et cetera, that won't suffice for multiple reasons. And so it's like, you really need the internal drive and the development of worldview is one of the things that he talks about is like in 
in a creative, in a more creative working world, what is valued is people's unique perspective on reality. Mm -hmm. Um, And that you can't get there by just like resting your meaning making on, well, I have a good salary and I don't like my job and I'm bored at it, but I can do it. And it keeps me state like economically stable, if not above, you know? Yeah. And so I think, and again, I think it's all to play for. And like me, I definitely tried to be like an optimist realist. Like the optimist part of me is like, everything is laid out for these larger shifts to happen. And the, um, realist in me is like and there will be there are forces that are trying to have that shift not happen um but i do feel like the thing that you mentioned and brought up about the ruining right the example of the student i had who he had a camera in his hands and six months later he was like making money as a photographer you know it's the danger of selling the snake oil of that can be for everyone but Mm -hmm. i do think that there is like the metaphor of the creative tool of the camera for that one young man. There are enough creative tools that if you try different things out and one clicks and then you let yourself be immersed in it. um, Like to me, that is the, the hopeful way forward. And a little bit of what I'm working with, with some of the work in Philadelphia with young people is like, how do you give a menu of options and like single serving experiences in podcasting, in photography, in graphic design, mm. et cetera. And then if a young person is like, Oh, I want to do more of that. Then it's like a single serving can turn into three weeks and then three weeks can turn into three months and like basically build on ramps so that it's not just, Oh, you're interested in graphic design. We'll apply to this four year university or this two year, you know, associates, program to go get a degree to justify your credentials then you can enter the working world it's like no if you have a portfolio and you are a graphic designer who understands the tools the creative tools and people appreciate your aesthetic then a four-year degree isn't like it may get you into some rooms but they're probably not the rooms you want to be in um, because you probably want to just be creating and I think that that's there are big existential questions around like what will higher education and college and all of that mean 20 years from now? Uh, hopefully your daughter, right? Yeah. Hopefully enough of a viable alternative shows up when she's a teenager and trying to navigate the world so that we can have these exploratory, you know, platforms and programs that she can come in and she's encouraged to like, go try shit out and see what resonates to her. And then part and parcel to that, um, connect with that as identity making, right? And like have an emotional, uh, a, you know, a, a way to like navigate emotions poetically, creatively, so that as she's in the throes of puberty and identity and trying things out, like, you know, the, the world is there to help her build anchors, not the experience I know I had, and it sounds like you had, where like, yeah, high school was like, here's my limited menu options of identity. None of them really feel right, but I'm at this college preparatory high school, so I guess I'll go with these ones, you know, Uh but definitely Uh felt like a misfit throughout that entire time. Yeah, that's great. And it reminds me of Spielberg, you know, who dropped out of college, like filmmaking school, but then uh, finally got his degree when I think he handed in E.T. as as his master's or something like that, you know, as his thesis. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I also think it's it's worth highlighting that experimenting with things and doing even, let's say, three months of photography, but then uh, losing your interest in it. Well, that's not a waste of time. And I think that um, the the way the economy would look like in the near future even is that it's, and it already is to a certain extent, like I'm kind of just in in some sort of um, a little bit of contact with the tech world through Twitter. I'm not coming from there, but I already know, you know, that some of the most sought after people are generalists and people with just the, the curiosity and the interesting story and and the willingness to try out new things rather than the specialist who's um, who can sh- showcase all the diplomas and and the the right the right credentials. Yeah, absolutely. Um, being mindful of the of of your time and of the list of yeah. our listeners' time, um, I just would like to see if there's any more to be said about where we started in the realm of of emotion if we left anything out there if there is a way to tie the two or just generally some ideas that are loose ends right now yeah so i think first i appreciate you for letting the conversation meander it (laughs) has to be it has to be the kind of podcast that i enjoy doing so you know (laughs) that's what it is yes um no, and the thing that I will will try to sum up, because I don't think there's anything more. Um, I guess for anyone who's listening, I encourage you all to explore how you relate to yourself and your emotions in that more poetic way. And like, um, I think for me, connecting to what we've talked about, like the last 15 minutes about school and society, you know, get into these big conversations that for me, so much of that is grounded again in a knowledge, like in a, in a deeper and a more poetic knowledge of self. And that that comes from understanding how do we feel our way through yeah, our lives and our existence. And I think we had a really powerful example for both of us come up, right? Of yeah, that like, oh, well, being in two times at once, but creatively you can go back and look at it and play with it and honor it, right? And that I think for me, we didn't touch on this maybe in a future podcast, but uh, a future episode. Um, I think that grieving is something that people are really f- afraid of. And I think that we have like at an individual level and a mass level, like if we authentically could hold each other in a grieving process, as we would hold each other through that, the whole world would change um, to be a more humane and like, yeah, authentic existence for all of us. Um, I know that's a big statement. Um, no, that's beautiful, and I, I I can't wait to to explore it honestly, and and hear and hear more about it for sure. So you're always welcome to to come back for another one. Um, yeah, I just maybe I want to send the listeners with you know what something that I think is is very central and connected to what you're saying is that just remember that emotions 
we have the the few that we know and if we're the kind of people that have read many books maybe the list of kind of defined emotions is grown to let's say 40 words if you find all the synonyms and the nuances that are expressed in language and yet you know there are literally an infinite amount of them so keep an open mind it's good to anchor them maybe in terms that we have in language but uh, i really love and i i wish for myself to really adopt this um, habit of also characterizing them by uh, metaphors and of course self-expression as we said so i think that sums up nicely kind of uh, that sums up nicely uh, what we can do here maybe yeah well thank you again so much for having me this has been a lot of fun I'm so happy that it finally worked for me. I think you're officially the guest I have I've had to woo for the longest uh, period of time. So really happy to do it. Really happy to do any future ones you'd like to do. And thank you so much, Luke. All right. Have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye.